The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Before us today lies Gethsemane, and we are eavesdropping into a conversation and discovering, uh-oh, it's about us. And the wonderful news is that Jesus went through the Garden of Gethsemane so that we could get back to the Garden of Eden. That's where we're going. If you would like to follow along, please do. And Bible's in Matthew 14, I'm sorry, Mark 14, beginning verse 32. And let me just remind you, we were looking last week at the Passover, we were considering the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and as Jesus goes to this <clears throat> Gethsemane, as John 18 uh, outlines for us, and it's not mentioned in Mark, but it says that he left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley, and that's kind of significant, because as he's crossing over to go pray, he's hearing the drain run, and he's seeing the color red of the temple altar as it ran down the Kidron Ravine to drain away the blood of sacrifices of 200,000 lambs. It is bright red, and it's flowing a lot more than your drains are flowing today in your neighborhoods from all the rain. And so Jesus and his band, they cross the Kidron, and it's red with this blood, and Jesus is realizing, this is all going to be fulfilled with me, but he's going to Gethsemane. And here's what he does in Gethsemane. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, began to be distressed, greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away, and again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray to you. Father, we ask that you would give us the grace now to fix our eyes on Jesus that it would enable us to run with perseverance the race marked out for us and that we would throw off everything that hinders the sin that so easily entangles and we pray that we would run the race marked out for us considering him who endured such hostility from sinners that we would not lose heart give grace to us in our trials Help us to see the love of Jesus in this very text. We ask in your name. Amen. 
Well, I want to start with the story behind the story, kind of the elephant in the room. That we, we talked a little bit about this last week, but I want to tackle it first. Jesus keeps referring to this cup. And the cup in the Bible can refer to either the cup of salvation, but more often it's the cup of wrath. And this is hard for us to swallow because it's such a strange concept that we live in a culture today where people will say, I would never love a God that isn't loving, and a God who is wrathful isn't loving, and therefore I don't believe in a God like that. I believe in a God who accepts me as I am, no strings attached. That's kind of <clears throat> what people believe. And so here you have Jesus going and praying about a cup and realizing that he must drink the cup of God's anger, his, his wrath, and so what I want us to see first is that as Jesus is praying for this cup to pass, is the what is, you know, how can God be a loving God but also uh, be angry with us? And I think if you consider the issues before us in our culture, you could just pretty much, if you took any issue and you see a lot of anger and a lot of outrage, probably the most recent issue just in our community is the Montgomery School Board Superintendent being asked to resign and you got people on both sides, and, but the issue is issues of justice, right? You've got a middle school principal at Farquhar that was promoted to Paint Branch, and then it's found that there are issues of sexual allegations and bullying, and, and the question was, well, how much did the superintendent know? And then she's being asked to resign, and she's saying there wasn't due process, there wasn't a proper course of justice being followed. Both sides are angry, but what they're angry at is if nobody cared... And if everybody didn't care about justice, then, then nobody would really care about this situation. But people are very passionate because they love something, and what they love is they want justice. Take, for example, the war on women and the overturning of Roe versus Wade, and this is such a hot-button issue in politics and probably will decide many Senate races and potentially who's the next POTUS. Both sides are very angry and adamant because the issue is an issue of justice. The heart of the issue is really this. Is the baby in the womb one of us or not? For conservatives, the answer is yes, and we are willing to fight for that baby in the womb because he's one of us, and we will fight for the rights. Whereas the liberals will say the answer is no, we're willing to fight for the rights of women and the rights of the woman to terminate the pregnancy. But the reason hardly anybody's neutral on this issue is because they see it as an issue of justice. And you can't help but get angry when people that you love are not getting the justice or their rights. And that's how both sides are seeing this. So as Tim Keller puts it, he says, loving people get angry, not in spite of the fact they're loving, but because they're loving. In fact, the more people you love and the more deeply you love people, the angrier you get. Have you ever noticed that? When you see people who are ravaged by something, in fact, if you see people who are ravaging themselves, you get mad. You get mad at them out of love. If you see people doing that and destroying themselves, you get mad. It's because you care. If you don't care, it's because you're too absorbed in yourself. You're too cynical. You're too hard. So the more loving you are, actually, the angrier you get. And we're told in Psalm 145 that God loves everything that he's made and that he is angry because of what is going on down here. So Keller says, with all due respect, he says, it's stupid to say, I don't want a wrathful God, an angry God, I want a loving God. If he's loving, he has to be angry. 
He has to do something about injustice. And as C.S. Lewis put it, he's interacting in his letters to Malcolm book. He has a, a letter from Malcolm, and uh, there's a correspondence between him and Malcolm. And this one letter, Malcolm says he's uncomfortable with the idea that God gets angry. He says he finds it more helpful to think of God's power and justice like a live electrical wire. He said the live wire doesn't feel angry with us, but if we blunder against it, we get a shock. Here is Lewis's reply. My dear Malcolm, what do you suppose you have gained by substituting the image of a live wire for that of angered majesty? You have shut us up all in despair, for the angry can forgive, but electricity can't. Turn God's wrath into mere enlightened disapproval, and you turn his love into mere humanitarianism. The consuming fire and the perfect beauty both vanish. Your conception of God's love and of your value in his sight will only be as big as your understanding of his wrath. And so here we are eavesdropping in on a conversation, and we realize this conversation is really about us. Jesus wants to know if there's any other way. Let this cup pass. Is there any other way that humanity can be saved? And the answer we see from the bigger picture of Scripture is that Jesus must drink the cup of God's wrath or humanity can't be saved. Humanity will have to drink the cup. So let's consider three things in the text. The agony of Christ, verses 33 and 34. The ask, verse 35 and verse 36. And the aloneness, in verse 37 to 42. The we're mainly going to look at the agony and the ask, but there is definitely the aloneness. And first of all, the agony, we see in verse 33 that he took Peter and James and John and he began to be greatly troubled and distressed. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And the text actually says he began to be greatly distressed. It's this idea of something, he's gotten new information. And now it's the idea of being, this word is for distressed, can mean a lot of different things, but it means to be astonished or alarmed or struck with terror, terrified, frightened, greatly disturbed, and even horrified. Philip's translation says that Jesus was horror-stricken and desperately depressed. Now, if you recall right after Jesus' baptism, as he began, and right before he begins his earthly ministry, he wrestled alone with the devil in the wilderness. And one of the temptations from the devil was what? He says, if you just bow down before me, I'll give all of this to you. I'll give you everything. And the, the idea was, is that you can have the crown without a cross. You can have all of this without any suffering. Here it is. And now here is Jesus at the end of his earthly ministry. And the very same contemplation is before him. And we know that the Satan left him, we're told, until an opportune time. And we're told that this is the hour of darkness. And so you can rest assured that Jesus is wrestling with all the demonic forces and the devil himself, as well as with the Father. And we know that Jesus is recoiling as he begins to look at this cup and he sees the future, and he sees what will happen to him. And the Bible just tells us plainly that God's eyes are too holy 
to look upon evil in Habakkuk chapter 1. And for Jesus to consider not only looking at evil, but actually becoming it. The Bible says that Jesus became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The Bible says that he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. So he's going to, these things are going to become part of him. He takes our sins as his own. And he naturally recoils from that. It's like the missionary story in Africa of the kid who fell into the latrine. And the father naturally is looking down into the into the the yuck of all that poop. And he sees his son down there and he wants to know, is there any other way? And he realizes there isn't. He has to jump in to retrieve his child. Jesus jumped in. Our elder brother to save us, he had to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He took our filth upon himself. And in doing so, he then experiences God's punishment, the just punishment on sin. John Calvin, <clears throat> the reformer, said that Jesus' horror was because he had before his eyes the dreadful tribunal of God and the judge himself armed with inconceivable vengeance. It was our sins, the burden of which he had assumed that pressed him down with their enormous mass and tormented him grievously with fear and anguish. And Charles Spurgeon rightly reflects, he says, it's clearly far beyond the preacher's capacity to set forth this to you, meaning what Christ actually experienced in Gethsemane is beyond anything that we can imagine. Because we can't imagine a perfect union of relationship that has existed for ages and ages and eternity past, centuries and who knows, millions and millions of years before the creation ever existed, there's been a perfect harmony between God the Father and God the Son. And to be severed from his Father by our sin, becoming our, taking our judgment, would be pronounced on Jesus, so that Jesus would actually cry out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And up to this point in Jesus' ministry, the father has um, affirmed his son a few times audibly with a voice from heaven. At his baptism and at his transfiguration, the father says to the son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And here nobody is listening to Jesus. He is alone in his aloneness. The Gethsemane begins with 11. One has already left. One has already gone to get the 600 soldiers with, with, with their torches, lanterns, and weapons to come get Jesus, and they're fully expecting Jesus to, to, to go undercover and, and to you know, not reveal himself, and so they, they bring torches and, and lanterns because they're going to need a lot of light to find him. They had no idea that Jesus would just turn himself over, but it begins with 11. They started out, and then he leaves eight behind, and he takes his closest three, and he brings them close, and they are within earshot. They are within visual sight. And they asked, and Jesus asked them, watch and pray. And, of course, Peter's already affirmed his love for him, and so he's singled out in verse 37. And those, those it's interesting because the ewes in 
when you see a you in English, you don't know if it's singular or plural because our translations don't do that. But the yous in verse 37 are singular. He has been singled out. That Peter, Peter, why can't you, why have you done this? You're the one who's so brave and so tough, and you're the one who's claiming that you'll die with me, and you can't even watch an hour. And then he turns to all of them and says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And, but Peter has, has clearly let him down. There's great disappointment here. And so have the other three, as they are just asleep. And so here we have this sacred moment in the history of the world, unlike any other moment, because you know as you've, if you've lived long enough where you've had to wrestle with a great decision in life, something that's gonna cause you great pain, somebody you're gonna have to stand up to, somebody you're gonna have to let go at work or leave a job or break up with you know, this person or you know, something exceedingly difficult, and there's some bigger things than that, right? The decision's the hardest part. Once you've made the decision, the die is cast. Now you're ready to move forward. This is the moment. This is where the decision has to be made. And here is the moment where salvation hangs in the balance. And here we are with Jesus wrestling with God the Father. And here we have the disciples pictured as clueless, sleepy, falling asleep can't keep their eyes open in this most sacred hour, and it's a picture of us, clueless to divine realities. And here the, the Son of God is wrestling with their very salvation. Jonathan Edwards says this is the greatest act of fidelity in the history of the universe. Here where Jesus Christ looked at these men falling asleep, and he could have said, why should I, infinitely greater than all the angels of heaven and all the kings of the earth, take this burning agony into my heart and soul and cast myself into this eternal furnace for those who will never repay me or profit me one iota, who cannot even stay awake with me one hour in a time of greatest need? Why should I give an eternity of an unimaginable, unimaginable torment when they could not even give me a few minutes of their attention? And Jesus knew what he was doing. He's the true and better Jacob. Remember Jacob, painfully struggling, wrestling with God all night. And he says, I won't let you go until you bless me. And here Jesus is painfully struggling. And he's not getting a blessing. He's getting a curse so that you could get the blessing. And he will wrestle with God. Is there any other way? And he realizes there is not. Donald McLeod, who wrote this great book called Christ Crucified, he says this, the love of Christ for his people is not that for, sake, for their sake he faced death without fear, but that he faced it terrified. Terrified by what he knew, he took damnation lovingly for his people. That's the agony. And then we have the ask. He falls to the ground. I mean, it's this idea, you know, it's not like, you know, this nice kneeling posture. I mean, he just falls prostrate to the ground and he prays. And unless you have in your, your mindset an understanding of the Trinity, an understanding that Jesus has two wills, you won't understand this. 
There was an early church heresy called the Eutyches heresies, which confounded the two natures in Christ, holding that there was really only one nature. And the one nature was the divine nature, and the human nature is swallowed up, and therefore Jesus only has one will, and it's a divine will. Well, if Jesus only has a divine will and not a human will, how in the world do you understand this text? Jesus has a human will, and his human will is struggling to get in accord with the divine will. And what you're seeing here is a conversation of the Trinity. We have God the Father and God the Son, and they're, they're one God, and yet they're separate persons, and these persons are interacting with one another, and the Son is praying to the Father. And if we don't understand this, then Jesus would just be a robot. Obedience would be automatic. But Jesus has to wrestle. He has to fight. He has to pray. He has to suffer. This is what the Bible says in Hebrews 5 about Jesus. And it's most likely referring to this very account of Gethsemane. We are told that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. To him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus suffered, and he wrestled in prayer. William Lane, commentator uh, on the Gospel of Mark, he puts it like this. You think about how Jesus has prayed to the Father, and when he's prayed before, the Father has answered him, and he says, Jesus came to be with the Father with an interlude before his betrayal, but he found hell rather than heaven open before him, and he staggered. And the idea of he staggered is that the cup of, uh, of God's wrath is often referred to in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, as the cup of suffering, the cup of staggering. And so Zechariah 12, 2, and these other verses I'm going to read, you'll see the, what the idea is, is that the cup is often a cup of wrath. Isaiah 51 Verse 17 and then 22 and 23 says this, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Thus says the Lord, the Lord, your God, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath you shall drink no more, and I will put it into the hand of your tormentors, who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over, and you have and made your neck like to the ground and like the street for them to pass over. And what he's saying is, here you were made to put your necks down, and they walked over your necks. And, and, and that was the cup that was coming upon you, and now he's saying, I'm going to put that cup now on your tormentors, on your enemies, and I will make them drink the cup. And what we see in this text is that, that God has taken from his hand the cup of wrath, and he hasn't given it to the tormentors or to the enemies, but he's given it to his very son to take our judgment. And it's called a cup of horror, a cup of desolation. And, and it, uh, Ezekiel 32, verse 33 and 34, and he says, You shall drink it and drain it, drain it out and gnaw its shards and tear your breast. The cup of horror and desolation. Jeremiah 25 
15 to 18 puts it like this. The Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, his kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Well, here now, it's being given to Jesus so that all the nations, so that Jesus could redeem a people for himself and purchase a people for himself out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that, that all the nations wouldn't have to drink of this cup of wrath. You see, what we see is that Jesus drained it for us. And Jonathan Edwards, in the reflection quote that's in the bulletin, I want you to consider that. If you have your bulletin, you can follow along on this quote. He says this, and he's, he wrote this sermon. This is in the 1700s. The sermon's called Christ Agony, and it's a Google search away. It's easy to find. It's a great sermon. But he says this in the middle of the sermon. He says, the sorrow and distress which Jesus' soul then suffered arose from the lively and full and intermediate view with which he, had, which he had then given him of the cup of wrath, by which God the Father did, as it were, set the cup before him for him to take it, take it and drink it. The thing that Christ's mind was so full of at that time was, without doubt, the same with that which his mouth was so full of. It was the dread which his human, uh, feeble human nature had of that dreadful cup, which was vastly more terrible than Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowing of its, of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. This was the thing that filled his soul with sorrow and darkness. This terrible sight, as it were, overwhelmed him. Now, just reflecting on that, what is Edwards saying? What Edwards is articulating is that Jesus is both God and man, but that as God, he's been given a full view of the furnace of God's wrath and what lies before him. He sees because he's God of what is in front of him. He sees the agony, his soul is sorrowful, even in the death in the garden. Jesus is not naive as to what lies before him, as we often are in never knowing the full extent of what's coming next. Jesus knows. And what he argues is that Jesus' death was unlike many martyrs' deaths, where they so confidently went to the grave, like Polycarp. Bring the lions, you know, one hour, you know. The people, the, the martyrs often went, with such confidence. Their death was unlike Jesus' death because Jesus knows as God that he's draining the cup dry of God's wrath. And this furnace is infinitely more heated than Nebuchadnezzar's ever was. When Jesus, knowing fully what lies before him in an agony, realizes there's no other way for our salvation out of love for his people, went to the furnace of God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. So we should never doubt the love of Christ because it was on full display as he stared down the cup in the garden and fully knowing the consequences, drank it out of love for us. Our salvation went through the garden of Gethsemane, and I believe that this is why the sermon is titled Jesus' Final Hour. 
I mean, his finest hour. Not just the final hour, it's his finest hour because he is alone and in anguish. His disciples can't stay awake. The father who'd previously always answered in affirming love to him is silent. And the clots of blood are coming and dropping off of his forehead. And an angel comes to strengthen him. It's his finest hour. Octavius Winslow, pastor from the 1800s, put it like this. He says, oh no, the utmost payment was exacted and the last drop of the cup was drained. Had there been the least relaxing of the law's stringency or the slightest curtailment of the law's penalty, then there would have been no salvation for us. And all this was the unveiling of love. To spare his people, he spared not his son. Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. A.W. Pink, who was also a preacher uh, in the 1900s, he contrasts the two gardens. This is what he says. The entrance of Christ into the garden at once reminds us of Eden. The contrast between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, the Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of them which you gave me, I have lost none. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from his father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. From Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led And he goes on and says, in Eden, the sword was brought out and we were kicked out. And in Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed, as he tells Peter to put away the sword. You see, there are two cups, the cup of salvation and the cup of salvation and the cup of wrath. And the reality is this, every single one of us here today will drink from one of those cups for eternity. Which of those will you drink? And the answer is whether or not you're placing your trust in the last Adam, the one who went to the Garden of Gethsemane so that you could get back to Eden. He drank the cup so you wouldn't have to. He took the curse so that you could get the blessing. And so the question to us this morning is, where is your trust? And are you, you know, this should affect us a couple of ways. One, it, we, we obviously, some practical lessons here, where we see some lessons on how we're to pray, looking at this text, right? We are to wrestle with God in prayer. There's, there's a lot of wrestling in prayer that only wrestles the first half, to say, you know, let this cup pass, and we pray for the healing, we pray for the miracle, and we, we, and, and we should. But there isn't a, a contemplating of the second half. But nevertheless... Not my will, but yours be done. Yours, Lord, at the end of the day. And sometimes I think some people only pray the second half of the prayer. 
Well, your will be done, Lord. And they don't ask for the big things and ask God to remove the cup. But this text teaches us a lot about prayer and how the way that we grow and the way that we, um, and this is obviously where the disciples failed, was they were sleepy when they should have been praying. And often prayer is the hardest work of the kingdom. But that's where God, God's work is done. And so we must learn to pray as the people of God. And so we see a lot here about prayer, but then we also see about, a lot about the love of God and the love of God the Father to spare not his only son. As a parent, you're always sparing your children from anything that would hurt them, of anything that would cause them to suffer. But we're told here that the Father did not spare the Son. Why would he not spare the Son of such pain, of such suffering? Because there had to be a punishment for sin. We see this all around us, and there, there, there is outrage, because there has to be a judgment. And, it, and it's a question of, okay, well, is that the, the right punishment or not? You know, the latest thing this week is, is $83 million a, a worthy punishment to be leveled on Trump? And the people that love Trump feel like that's not fair. That's not a right judgment. But the people that side with the woman and say she's been hurt this way and she's been defamed and sexually defrauded in this way, it's worth that kind of money. But all are arguing the same thing. It's just the question of where should the justice lie? But we know innately there has to be justice. God had to bring justice. The soul that sins shall die. And we have all bitten from the hand that has fed us, proverbially and literally. We, we have bit at the Father who has fed us daily. And we have sinned against him and we have grieved him. And there has to be a punishment. And so God brings down the punishment and he brings it down on his son so that we could escape the punishment. But if we refuse his punishment and we say we don't want it, we don't need it, we're better than that. I don't like a, a God like that. Well, then the punishment will then come upon us. And so we must trust in God's sacrifice of his son. And we, so we see the justice. We see the love of God in it. And then we also see that the way that we treat sin and the way that we entertain and flirt with sin and, and the realities of this world that are always tempting our souls is that if we truly loved our Lord Jesus and what he's done for us, we cannot continue to crucify the son of God afresh. We cannot continue to abide and dwell in sin and remain in, in things that are, that are ugly before God. If we see what this costs the Son, then we must repent and turn from the things that, that we're doing that we know that are displeasing in his sight out of love for him. This is a text that changes us from the inside out because we see the agony, the torture of what Christ our Lord went through in anguish for our salvation. And so, may we love the Lord all the more for what he has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we will probably never know the depths of this, but we pray that we would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, the height, the depth of what you have done for us. We thank you that you left the bliss and the blessing and the perfections of heaven and came to a world that is broken. And we all know the Humpty Dumpty of things are broken and we can't fix it. But we thank you that you not only fixed it, making us right with you, and we're also right with ourselves. 
We thank you for peace with God. And we ask that, Lord, you would quiet consciences, that you would apply the blood now to our consciences, and that you would forgive us, Lord, of our ignorance, our sleepiness, our laziness, and then, Lord, our coveting and so many things in this life. And then thinking that you're the problem. And Lord, may we trust and see that you are good and gracious and great. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.